0: and you can get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash slash film.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, April 30th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk Avengers Endgame spoilers. So if you have not seen the final installment of the Marvel Infinity Saga, do not listen to this podcast. You have been warned. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter soretta And joining me on today's podcast this is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writers, Y-Trend Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So, Chris has a review for this movie on the site, um, but Chris, what is, what is your brief thoughts on Avengers Endgame?
2: Uh, it's good. I liked it a lot more than Infinity War. Um, I really liked how conclusive it felt. I mean, obviously, it's not the end of the MCU, but... It, You know, unlike a lot of the other movies in the MCU, this movie felt like, uh, for lack of a better term, a movie to me. It had a clear beginning and it had a clear ending. It didn't just, you know, it, the ending wasn't just like, get ready for what's coming next. It actually closed a lot of stories off. And I really liked that about the movie.
1: By the way, Chris, I know a lot of people that listen to this podcast that like the Marvel movies. And they, 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 they were so happy that you gave this a good review. And then, in your brief review, you—it you, seemed like you were trying to troll them.
2: No, there's no no. First of all, no, there's no trolling in my writing, and I get very angry when people say that. I'm just giving you my honest opinion. Yeah, yeah, okay.
1: Um, Brad, you also did a—you did a spoiler review, which you can find us. I'm going to link both of these in the show notes. Uh, what did you think of this movie?
3: Yeah, um, I I love this movie. Um, it, it is a miracle of a movie it's this incredible culmination of all these marvel movies that you know resolves character threads from previous movies but also gives the hero something to go through within a this finite space that is just the the installment of endgame uh like chris says it has a beginning middle and end and it it really uh has important arcs for the characters within this single movie but it also does a fine job of ending what has come for these characters in the preceding installments. And it's just, it has everything you ever want from a big, you know, blockbuster spectacle like this. It has huge action. It has, um, a big beating heart. It has genuine emotion. Um, it's very funny and it's just, it, it's one of the most memorable theatrical experiences that I've ever had. It's
1: just, uh, something that I enjoyed thoroughly. Yeah. Uh, the Back to the Future trilogy is some of my favorite films. And this reminds me a lot of Back to the Future 2 in many ways in that, you know, it involves time travel. Also, it feels like a bunch of different movies. Like that first 45 minutes feels like this dire, hopeless uh kind of <laughs> a take on things. And then the middle part is this, you know, Back to the Future 2 style time travel adventure. And then the last part is like this just huge... Uh, destruction-filled uh, action sequence, which is is a lot of fun. Uh, it, it, and um, to to me, like I, I feel like like you know, this is a conclusion. Like it does feel like a bookend to the films that we've seen before. It, but the, the thing that I really enjoy about this movie is it also feels like a tribute to all those films. Like we get to go back to some of those moments, and it, it's it really has great moments for. All the characters, or at least the the prime characters here. Uh, HT, you are the only one who has not gotten a chance to talk about this movie, either on the podcast or on the site. So feel free to go along. What did you think?
4: Well, Brad, first of all, stole my line. (laughs) so <laughs> what was your what was your line? I was gonna go with this is a miracle of a movie, but okay um <laughs> <laughs> i I am in awe of this movie. I was also one of the people who didn't really enjoy Infinity War because it didn't feel like a movie to me, but this feels both like a movie and like um like you were saying, Peter, just a tribute to all the 11 years of storytelling that we've seen. It's amazing to me that it is able to act on like both of those levels. We see it working so well as this small, uh, more intimate character film, and yet is able to tie in and wrap up all these arcs that have been going on for a decade now. Um, And that to me was just so amazing to see. And, um, I uh, I really liked the first half of the film, actually. I didn't expect it to take quite its time. And I love when movies get pon- ponderous and almost meditative like that. I really like that explore- exploration of grief and trauma and the idea that these heroes have failed Earth and have failed Humanity, and uh, that's something for me was so interesting to see um, the Avengers um, and all the heroes in this movie grapple with. Uh, it's it's a very mature. Um, sort of a subject that you don't really often see in these kind of films and it feels just so grand and epic at the same time as being so small and i like that a lot um i liked all three aspects of this film the time heist as they say which everyone is excited about the word time (laughs) heist but i will say doctor who used that term first (laughs) i'm gonna (laughs) pull that in um do you you think um, one of the writers
1: is a fan of doctor who or do you think they just didn't know
4: I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, the Russo brothers did write for Community after all, and Community yeah. did have a wonderful parody of Doctor Who for a like that was a running gag throughout the series. So I wouldn't be surprised if they, uh, you know, maybe made a nod to that in some way. Um, but yeah, I liked um, even the action uh, in the third act of this film. I really enjoyed because I've always felt like Marvel action tends to be kind of. Um, uh, to veer to- more towards visual noise, and I think while well, yeah. this one did threaten to be in that, be somewhat visual noise in the in that case, it um, had a much more strong emotional through line, and uh, that for me was able to just like anchor that the big battle scene even more, and it had so many great moments that for me rang much more. Um, much stronger than it did in Infinity War. And uh I, I like the the concept of just like the hot potato of the Yeah.
1: That
4: that um I won't spoil it, but that goes through the film. Well, people the people are action.
1: listening to this are listen, like they, they they are this is a spoiler discussion, so go ahead and Okay. Yeah. yeah,
4: the hot potato of the um I guess Infinity uh not gauntlet now. It's I whatever. think it's the iron
1: gauntlet, I think iron is what gauntlet. we're okay. calling it. I don't know.
4: Yes, the Iron Gauntlet. I think that was a really nice thread that like helped tie all of the battles together. Otherwise, it might have just descended into like a little bit too much chaos. But I really enjoyed that. I had, you know, some issues with a few of the character arcs and um, some of the moments that did feel a little t- too much like pandering to me. But overall, it was just such a phenomenal film and experience. And um, I appreciate it on like so many levels.
1: Yeah, actually talk about that. I want to hear about those moments. I know we're going along with this, but like what were the moments that you did not like?
4: Well, for me, um, I really liked Thor's arc, but I didn't enjoy the um, clashing tones that took place through that arc. I really – I like that – we see him kind of come to terms with like he's not meant to be a king, but the fact that they lean into the comedy for so long of it uh, kind of um, just uh, rubbed me the wrong way because I felt like his arc was really interesting and was one of the most cohesive parts of this film. But then they kind of played it as a joke for the majority of his screen time and was, that bothered me a little bit um and i wait i'm I'm wondering
1: how how do you feel about him handing over the kingdom to valkyrie which which i know she obviously has stepped up and she became a leader in her own right Mm -hmm. in, in new asgard but to me it felt like she was like you you know thor was like here i i don't want to do this anymore here have my leftovers
4: yeah i mean that's kind of what i was uh um Referring to in terms of just like how the, the journey to get to that ending felt a little bit uh, incoherent just because it's like it you can see where the beats land but the, the way that they build to those beats don't exactly work. Like I can see him you know realizing that he's not meant to be a king and that he thinks that she is a much better leader and we kind of see some of that but the way that they play off as of a joke te- make, makes it feel a little bit um, just, uh, insincere in a yeah. way. Um and um this is I have a probably controversial opinion about Black Widow's arc because I was not totally satisfied with it. I just felt like her ending was like was kind of a disservice to her, but it's more because of her inconsistent characterization throughout the entire Marvel franchise less than it is about like what she actually goes through in this film cuz to me just have just have her leap into um you know grieving so hard and so much for like their failure and then leaping into like her having to sacrifice herself I didn't really see where just like that whole how that all ties together and it felt like to me like she kind of she should have she should have had more time to like work to have to have that depicted on screen.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. Uh,
4: yeah. Her, it almost, her uh, it
1: almost seems to me like it's like Scarlett Johansson being like, I don't want to do any more movies, and they found a way to write her off. But then she has this whole other movie that's coming. Which yeah. is, so that's kind of confusing. Brad, I know you wrote up a thing for the site basically speculating on what this movie means for the Black Widow movie. Uh, what does it mean?
3: Yes. Um, well, as we know, like we talked about, Black Widow dies, so this movie can't really be one that continues with her. Uh, in the events that follow Avengers Endgame. So more likely, as the rumors have said, this movie will be a prequel that focuses on Black Widow during her early days as an assassin for the KGB, presumably before she even became uh, a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. This could maybe even lead into how she becomes recruited by S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, A lot of people have hoped that maybe this movie would focus um, potentially around the time that is referenced uh, a few times throughout the Marvel Cinematic Universe when her and Hawkeye had some kind of mission that they pulled off in Budapest. They, they uh, even
1: mention it in this movie. Like, they're like, doesn't Hawkeye say, like, we're a long way from Budapest as they're, like, light speeding through the galaxy?
3: Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's that's obviously a key point for them. But that's something they could end up saving. Um, but, like uh, like I said, more, more likely this is a uh, prequel that will focus on a younger Black Widow um, and will give us a little bit more
1: uh, history of her character. So why are people going to care about this movie if Scarlett Johansson's character is dead? I mean, part
3: of me is wondering if maybe it will add a little bit more uh, meat to her background, give her some more significance, and perhaps in the way that Avengers Endgame does, maybe use the past as a way to enhance what we already know about Black Widow and what happens uh, in the future. Also similarly to how Captain Marvel does something by making – the events of the 90s a little bit more significant to what happens in the future as well. Uh, so perhaps there's a chance here that this will uh, help flesh her out as, as a character. May also uh, set up something that is coming in uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe later that will follow the events of Avengers Endgame, uh, making it more important into the overall timeline. But uh, uh, we're kind of still in the dark right now because we don't even know specifically uh, what characters, uh, cast members like Florence Pugh and David Harbour and Rachel Weiss are playing. Uh, so Marvel's still keeping stuff uh, under wraps until after Spider-Man Far From Home comes out. So right now all we can do is speculate.
1: So you're basically proposing that this is going to be like that Jason Bourne movie, that like spinoff movie, but it's going to have the main character in it.
3: Yeah, and hopefully it'll be good.
4: I <laughs> like
1: that movie um, Okay, I- H.E., I know we cut you off because that was a perfect transition into that but you had one other uh, third problem with the movie
4: Yeah, no worries I mean, going off of Black Widow and kind of the disservice that she's been done by just the Marvel uh, franchise in general I feel like the big girl power moment in um, the latter the third act of the big battle of Avengers Endgame felt a, rang a little hollow for me It felt very uh unearned because it's it happens when uh Peter Parker is about is holding on to the uh iron gauntlet and uh he he's he gives it to Captain Marvel who says and he says, How are you gonna get it through all of that? And then it just kind of leads into this big moment where all the girls all the female superheroes suddenly appear and are like, we'll take care of it. And it did get a big applause from my audience, and I can see why it would be such a, good, a really powerful moment for like young girls and people who, who see that. But for me, it just felt like, I guess, too little, too late. Um, I, I keep talking about the history of Marvel, but this is a film that relies so heavily on the history of Marvel. They haven't really done a good service by their female characters, and to just kind of bring them and rally them all together into the one big feminism moment felt to me like very unearned and very just cheap so um
1: also the logistics of that moment don't make yeah. sense like all these women are all over the place uh brad were you saying that like wasp is at, at the time is trying to start up the van
4: that was me actually or that was you yeah <laughs> i was like wasn't she like in the middle of trying to start up the van And it was a very um important task that she <laughs> and uh, scott were trying to do so that they, they can get the gauntlet over there but you know they just wanted that that powerful moment that you know marquee, marquee moment and i understand why they included it and um i it kind of felt to me like they were hinting to like oh look this is going to be our a force team well, look out for that movie in 3 to 4 yeah. years so it just it just felt too much like um yeah pandering it, it, to pandering.
1: me. yeah mm-hmm. to me i it, it did work although i do see all the problems with it i don't know I, i'm not sure why it worked for me because like it does it is pandering. It's not. Doesn't. See, it doesn't seem like pandering. It is pandering, uh, but uh, and it doesn't make any sense in the in the the bigger scale of this battle. But for some reason, it filled my heart with joy. Maybe it was just seeing those characters together for the first time. I, but, uh, I I disagree. I disagree that that it doesn't
3: make sense in the scale of the battle because I think at that point the van has already been restarted, and so she comes over right afterwards to join them because and at that moment. Captain Marvel is trying to fly the gauntlet into the van to send it to, to go back yeah. in time and and put the stones back. Um, so that's that. I think that logistically makes sense. And plus, I mean, they're all. If you want to talk about a larger thing that that doesn't entirely make sense and you wonder how it all works, is I'm wondering how they coordinated the fact that everybody. Uh, that, that's some, what I'm saying. Think- somehow had no no. Well, hold on. Uh, but I'm, I'm not not even just the, all the women coming together. I'm talking about just how everyone communicates to each other because all the Avengers apparently have uh, earpieces that are all connected to each other, including the ones who just came out of uh, from being unsnapped from all these different parts of the of the world of the universe. But they're, all, they're somehow all prepared with an earpiece that allows them all to talk to each other at any given time.
1: Not, not only that, but Doctor Strange opens up the portals. If you actually see this movie a second time, you can see there's a portal to Wakanda. There's a portal to Titan. So how does he communicate with all those people and being like, we're going to go in and we're going to go to this battle? Like, magic. Magic. Yeah. <laughs> literally. <laughs> yeah, literally magic. Um, but the, the other thing that occurs to me in this woman moment is that I don't think Captain Marvel needs any help. I mean, she seems like so overpowered, and that, it, like
3: that, that's the big thing, especially because she immediately flies through everything that's in their way,
1: yeah. <laughs> except, except for Thanos. Chris, what did you think of this moment?
2: What the 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 girl power moment? Yeah. Or yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. My my biggest problem with this movie—it's not even uh, that big of a problem—but there is a lot of uh, fan service in the film, and I, I say this in my review actually that even though there's a lot of fan service, the the movie sort of earns it just because of, you know, the achievement of 20 plus films, 11, you know, 10 plus years at the same time uh, of all the, the fan service movies in the, of all the fan service moments in the movie that the, the girl power moment is, I think the the most egregious because for one thing, half of those characters don't even like know each other, but they're all like, yeah, ladies, let's get in formation. It's like, come on, let's, let's calm down. And it also kind of <laughs> <Let's> calm down. <laughs> it, it kind of bugged me that black widow was like dead at that point because she's like the longest running female mar you know, MCU character. And she didn't get to be in that, that moment. Cause you know, she had to jump off the stupid cliff. So that, that sort of felt like a ripoff too. Like she didn't get to be part of that big girl power moment. And it, it just, of all the fan service moments, that's the one that so painfully feels like a scene where, the filmmakers are like clapping themselves on the back and being like, let's put this directly in the movie. So everyone will cheer at it. And, you know, <laughs> at the same time, it's fine. I get yeah. why they did it. If people like it, I'm not going to, you know, fault them for liking it, but it's, it definitely made me cringe ever so slightly. <laughs> for for
3: what it's worth, uh, the writers, uh, Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely did uh, address the fact that when they were talking about this scene, They were aware that it did uh, feel like pandering and it could be perceived as such, um, but they thought that just the visual of it
1: and just that moment was too good to pass it up for that reason alone. Yeah, you're
4: yes. never, you're never. I, mean, I you're, understand.
1: Yeah, you're never gonna get that many female superheroes in one place at one time ever again, probably, or maybe you know, ten years down the line, I guess. But um, I mean, hopefully they do an, a, like in a, a female Avengers team up, and what uh, Kevin Feige was talking about uh, to Tessa Thompson wasn't just this moment. Hopefully it's bigger than that. But uh, this movie did some huge box office over the weekend. Actually, it broke almost every single record. Brad, tell us about it.
3: Yes, uh, the box office predictions that came out beforehand knew this movie was going to be huge, but there was some skepticism as to whether or not it would reach some of these huge milestones that had never even been touched by previous movies. But Avengers Endgame exceeded even the highest expectations. Um, It had a a worldwide debut of $1.2 billion. It's the first time uh, any movie ever has made a billion dollars in its opening weekend around the world, um, and then on top of that, in the United States, it had a three hundred fifty million dollar opening, which is by far the biggest opening weekend for any movie. It was nearly a hundred million more than the previous record that was set by Avengers: Infinity Wars, two hundred fifty seven point six million opening weekend. Um, it, it broke the single day records, it broke the individual weekend day records, um, it had the biggest opening in China. And a big reason that the worldwide opening was so huge this time compared to Infinity War is because Infinity War didn't open day and date uh, in China like um, like Avengers Endgame did. And the China box office added a huge chunk of worldwide uh, money to it, around $330 million. Um, so it, yeah, it's, this is just uh, an unprecedented box office Event, and I'm wondering if there's any movie that can even come close to topping this because uh, you could say uh, Rise of Skywalker because the Star Wars movies are always huge box office contenders. But I feel like the Marvel Cinematic Universe has much broader appeal than the Star Wars movies. Uh, Star Wars is very popular, but it still very much has a niche audience when it comes to general audiences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just I just don't know if that movie has the power to do it. Um, the, the, the fact but that but they're it also the going
1: to sell that movie as like the end of the series yeah, that, too. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what I was going to say. That that could help it. Um, and then
3: of course there's the question of you know whether or not people care enough about the Avatar sequels to make those a big deal because Avatar is still the all time highest grossing movie uh, with around two point seven billion. So uh, I think those are the only two movies that could possibly outdo Avengers Endgame at this point. Uh, but even then, you know, that's a, that's a big if.
1: By the way, uh, you know, for the summer movie wager, we all put in some – a side bet, guessing what the, in, the box officer Avengers Endgame will end up being for the summer. Obviously, we cannot foresee that right now. But if Avengers Endgame followed the same um, multiple – of the opening weekend to the, the end of the summer uh, numbers, it would end up making $892 million by the end of the summer domestically. And out of all the side bets from the slash Home to the slash home daily, I put the highest number in there and I put 850 and uh, that's even less than what it's going to do. So I think w- we all underestimated this, which is kind of insane. You just
4: wanted to toot your own horn. to you. You're like, I win.
1: <laughs> but I thought I was going over. I thought I was, because this is also price, price's right rule. So if I had mm-hmm. gone over, I, 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 I took a big swing, and I think, I think I'm there. I don't know. I, I also think this is going to have, this movie over Infinity War is going to have more repeat feeling. I feel like there's more, uh, to go back and see, you know, multiple times. Um, I
3: do wonder i i I think the second weekend will be a good indicator simply because uh i there 's a chance that this movie could be front loaded because people want to avoid spoilers and they 're seeing it as soon as possible, but the three hour runtime may start to hurt repeat viewings because it is so long and not as easy to rewatch as some of the other uh blockbuster
1: heads okay let 's dive into the movie itself um the movie starts off with this hopeless scene in space, and after the, or actually, it doesn't start off with the hopeless scene in space. It starts off with Hawkeye, and uh, I'm, I'm just wondering how many of you guys, like how long, how many seconds into that scene did it take you guys to realize what was going on here?
3: Well, I mean, I kind of I, I predicted this based <laughs> on the footage that came from the trailers, so like I knew exactly what was going to happen, but it still made it uh, really fun, you know, that the people were still like. So taken aback when all of a sudden his family disappears,
1: yeah, the reaction in the theater was just insane and it was funny because there was a lot of reaction when it actually happened, but there was reaction throughout the scene of like people just realizing where the scene was headed um, yeah but uh, okay, so the movie begins with this of uh, uh the Marvel Studios logo and uh, to uh dear mr. fantasy uh something I didn't notice I've seen this movie three times in the theater and I did not notice this. But that Marvel Studios logo is actually different than the traditional Marvel Studios logo. I think this is something that even my uh, biggest Marvel uh, fan friend did not notice. Uh, HT, what is different about this, this intro?
4: Uh, you may notice if you go back and see Avengers Endgame and watch the logo very closely that it is missing all of the Marvel characters who have been dusted uh, since Avengers Infinity War. So this is the the version of the Marvel, Marvel Studios logo that shows all the MCU characters in the opening uh, rather than just the flipping of the comic book pages. So you see like Iron Man uh, and Captain America throwing a shield, Black Widow, Black Panther. But if you watch the Endgame version... Black Panther's not there. Scarlet Witch isn't there, and uh, it's only the the core Avengers who are the main cast of Endgame.
1: So that's pretty cool. It's pretty mm-hmm. cool that the dusted are not there. Um, let's talk. Um, let's talk about some Easter eggs in this film. I know one thing I noticed uh, <laughs> is uh, B- Black Widow at one point is eating a sandwich, and she threatens to throw the sandwich at someone. Immediately in my mind. That made me think of the Ben Fritz book. Um, what what is it called, Chris? Uh, the Big Picture. Big Picture. Uh, and I know you wrote this up for the site, and in kind of an, uh, a a uh, facetious headline, "The Shocking Truth Behind the Avengers Endgame Sandwich Scene." But I, I think this is actually probably true, and it's uh, I think it's a, a reference to something that happened in Marvel history. So tell us about it.
2: Uh, Yes, this is the story that for some reason made people angry because I just have that effect on people. I just infuriate everyone with everything I do. I think it's the headline, by the way. I think people took it as like a real headline. I don't know. I feel like how can you look at the headline and not see it's a joke? But what do I know? Anyway, so Ben Fritz, he has this great book. It's called The Big Picture. And the book is all about how Hollywood got to the point where it is right now, where What they primarily care about are superhero movies and big uh, tentpole franchises and all that stuff. And the book delves into a lot of stuff about Marvel and a lot of stuff about Sony, because the the infamous Sony hacks serve as a really big source for a lot of Ben Fritz's material here. And uh, he he writes this story about how after um, The Amazing Spider-Man 2 came out and wasn't as big a hit as Sony was hoping to be, Ah, uh, Kevin Feige at Marvel Studios finally thought it was time to to make the move, and he sat down with Amy Pascal of Sony, and uh, at a lunch meeting, and he 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 pitched her on the idea of finally bringing Spider-Man into the MCU. Because um, if you weren't aware, uh, up until Spider-Man: Homecoming, um, or actually, I guess it was Civil War, uh, Marvel didn't have the rights to Spider-Man. Marvel Studios didn't have the rights to Spider-Man. That was all um, Sony. And so Kevin Feige, he sat down Amy Pascal over lunch, and he said, "Look, I love Spider Man. Why don't you let us produce the next Spider Man movie?" And Amy Pascal was so uh, angry at this offer uh, that she literally threw her sandwich at Kevin Feige. And you know, she tried to play it off as a joke, but you know, her her pride was wounded basically because she felt like. Uh, giving in and finally giving spider-man which was sony's biggest property to marvel would be admitting defeat uh of course we all know how this turned out eventually they Mm -hmm. did relent but at the same time sony made um into the spider-verse which is a great movie in its own right so they're finally getting the hang of things but with all this in mind with the idea of uh amy pascal throwing her sandwich at kevin feige there's a scene in uh, the beginning of Endgame where um, after the the intro where they kill Thanos, it jumps f- forward five years into the future. Uh, the world is trying to move on from the snap, but uh, Black Widow is understandably still miserable about everything. And she's one of the few people holding down the fort at Avengers HQ. She's sitting around in her, her sweatpants, her roots are growing out, and she's making a very depressing... Sandwich, which is a peanut butter sandwich on white bread, the most depressing sandwich anyone could possibly make. Uh, and so she's she's eating the sandwich, and uh, Captain America comes in, and ever the optimist, he's like, "Oh, when I was driving over here, I saw some whales in the Hudson River, and the air is cleaner." And he, you know, he's trying to make the best of a terrible situation. And by, by
1: the way, she- I I love that this movie, even for a second, explores the positive. Effects of the dusting. Do you know what I mean? Like, I like
2: that too. And I, I wish there was actually more of that in the movie, where people were trying to be like, maybe it's not such a bad thing, but they they move on from that very quickly. But I did like that moment. But uh, in any case, Black Widow does not want to hear it, and she says, you know, basically, if you're if you're trying to get me to look on the bright side, I'm going to throw my sandwich at you, and then the scene moves on. And you know, it's a quick, somewhat amusing scene, but I, it does actually get somewhat more amusing if you try and take it in context with the the Amy Pascal Kevin foggy story
1: yeah i I, I don 't know my theory is they are that 's referenced by the writers uh, Marcus and Mafiele, but who knows maybe maybe one day we'll get a chance to ask them uh, and if I ever do get to sit down with them, I want to talk to them about the time travel of this movie. Because uh, I'm, you know, a time travel nerd. I wrote this whole piece up for the site. I'll put it in the link uh, in the show notes. It's called Let's Talk About the Nerdy Logistical Paradoxes of Avengers Endgame. And I think I've nailed down how time travel works in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So uh, bear with me for a second. I think um, Smart Hulk explains that when you go into the past, you can't affect the future because the past is now your future. So what that means in my mind is that if people in this movie go to the past, they're actually not going to the past of their prime timeline. They're actually going to an alternate version of the past. So when they go to the alternate version of the past, an alternate version of uh Thanos, or, you know, Thanos from two thousand fourteen, goes into the future and they kill him. That doesn't stop Thanos from originally getting the getting the Infinity Gauntlet and it doesn't cause this entire huge paradox. It also means that, you know, when, uh, Nebula kills 2014 Nebula, that she doesn't cease to exist. So there's that, that version of how time travel works explains a lot of what I think people are having problems with this movie. But the one thing it doesn't quite explain is at the end of this movie, uh, old cap, appears on the bench outside of uh you know overlooking the lake and uh, a lot of people you know so he went back in time he returned stones which is also interesting in its own right because you know he has to go come face to face with red skull (laughs) it's nurch emphasis uh he he has to uh go and return uh yeah and i'm wondering by the way if you return this like red skull said a a soul for a soul so, if you return the Soul Stone, do you get anything in return? I don't know. Um, I guess we'll never know. But, um, oh, so he goes back in time and he goes and spends some time with Peggy. This is a moment that I think we theorized in a past edition of the podcast. And, and HT, you said you'd cry if that happened. Did you cry?
4: Did I cry? <laughs> um, I maybe teared up.
1: <laughs> maybe. I I can tell you I cried. So... um. But, okay, so he ends up spending the rest of his life with Peggy, um, as far as we know. He is now an old man. And a lot of people think that this breaks the the timeline because how can he exist in this universe as an old man if when you go back in time you can't change anything? Um, my only theory to, to basically explain that is that from the past, alternate past that you go into, if you ever travel back in time to the – future you're traveling to the main canon timeline so i'm i'm assuming cap at some point maybe during the big battle of uh, what ben likes to call the battle of upstate new york um he travels to the battle of upstate new york watches that from afar and then you know sits it out you know for for a day or two while the funeral happens and then like goes and meets with them so that's that's what i'm assuming but uh, is there guys is, is there any logistics to this time travel like or do you think that the writers didn't even care
3: (laughs) i mean time travel is tricky so like i don't think it's a matter of not caring i think it's just a matter of like there's always going to be some kind of paradox that you can pull out of it that you kind of just have to accept and like understand that it's it's not uh easy to make like perfect
4: Yeah, it certainly plays fast and loose with the rules of time travel, but it kind of hand waves it away with the concept of alternate timelines, which um, both make it easy to just kind of explain, oh, this changed, so it's just an alternate timeline now, and also give a lot of potential storytelling opportunities for Marvel.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I think, I think that's right. Um... Also, the the other thing I was w- I wondered about in this piece, and I wanted to hear what you guys are thinking. Like, how does the unsnapping work? Like, when 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 uh, it's actually snapped, and the people all come back, the, the half of the, this world, not just people, but creatures, every living thing, uh, returns. Do they return to the place where they left? Like, we. It, it seems like in that final battle, we see, you know, Spider Man and uh, all the people that were snapped returning from. Titan, so you would think that they would appear exactly where they left but that that leaves for some interesting questions like if you were snapped while you were riding an airplane do you just reappear in the middle of the sky and then just like fall to your death no oh my.
3: <laughs> yeah this is my um, one of the best things i think that's been brought up about this because th- there are so many ways that being brought back from from the snap can go wrong uh, and it does make me wonder about the logistics of
1: it. Yeah, I, I mentioned in this piece, uh, which I'd highly recommend because I'm going I'm breezing over this time travel stuff. But like I, I really get into the nitty gritty nerdiness of it. But um, I bring in this piece. What if someone was having sex with their significant other when the snap happened? Right. So if they get dusted, which is, by the way, like terrifying in its own right for that person. Uh, th- that's in the bed now this person has spent five years they finally gotten over you know they're like one of these people like uh, Joe Russo in that uh, that um, group session they're now dating and they're now like on their first you know their third date with someone and they're having sex in that bed and all of a sudden unsnapping happens
4: <clears throat> I like that this scenario requires that they're having sex at the exact time that the unsnapping happens so it's like make it extra awkward
1: yeah, I don't know. I I bring up a couple of these scenarios in that piece, but uh, I, I know we're never going to get the answers to those questions, but I, I think they're fun regardless. Uh, let's talk about more Easter eggs. Uh, Stan Lee has a cameo in this movie. Uh, Ichi, you wrote an article about
4: this? Yes. Uh, so this is actually Stanley's final on-screen cameo in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, he shot several cameos uh, before his death in 2018, and uh, this will be the last of them kind of capping off both of this this era in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and also just Stan Lee's long legacy uh, making cameos on screen. So uh, his cameo actually takes place during a sequence at the 1970s S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters uh, when Tony Stark and Steve Rogers are in the midst of their time heist and uh, they arrive in order to get a chance at grabbing the test track a second time. Um, But as they're um, in the midst of this heist uh, Stan Lee zooms by in a white muscle car. Beautiful lady by Aside, goofy bumper bumper sticker on the back of his car that says nuff said which fun fact was one of lee's catchphrases from his messages to readers uh of marvel comics um and uh he says as he's passing by make love not war it's very you know 70s hippie <laughs> style and he's sporting a look that is very suiting of that he is de-aged in this scene so he is um still kind of gray but not completely white He's long flowing hair and a generous mustache
1: yeah uh bride where would you rank this in the stanley cam- cameo uh canon uh <laughs> i mean i like this one mostly just because it gives us young
3: stanley again and that's uh it's kind of kind of a cool thing to see since uh, all the other cameos have, have been stanley in his older years uh so that's fun, and you know, uh, I think just giving him that, you know, that hippie spirit, and uh, in a funny way, almost like um, shaking his fist at at the people who created Captain America, which is kind of funny.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I think I like his uh, Captain Marvel cameo more, or even um, I don't know. This is probably on the lower end for me. I, I like his uh, appearance and. Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Like, I feel like that's a perfect end for him.
4: Yeah, I think for me, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse was the best sort of goodbye one for him.
1: Um, a lot of people are asking after seeing this movie, who is that young man at the funeral at the end, at Tony Stark's funeral? Uh, Brad, who is he?
3: Uh, yeah, so there's a uh, a shot and during Tony Stark's funeral that ha- pans through pretty much all of the superhero characters from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, you recognize everybody that's there. They're all standing in their own groups that they know each other with. The Guardians of the Galaxy are standing uh, next to each other. And Ant-Man and the Wasp are standing there with uh, Hank Pym and, um, and Hope Van Dyne, or Janet Van Dyne. And so we, as you move towards the back, there's one teenage kid just standing there by himself. And it's kind of hard to recognize who he is, and it's bo- ma- mostly because the actor has aged so much since his appearance in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, and it's Ty Simpkins who played the young, sarcastic whiz kid that Tony Stark meets in Iron Man three. Um, he's he's grown up a little bit since then, so he's uh, a little bit taller, a little bit lankier. His face is grown out, and so he's 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 matured, and he just doesn't look like his uh, young self anymore. Um, But that's that's him standing there. It's kind of a cool moment that he's there for Tony Stark's funeral since him and Tony bonded a little bit, uh, almost having him as like a just a quick makeshift stepdad, uh, if you will, even though Tony kind of resisted being that for the kid. Um, But I I thought it was a nice, uh, nice touch to have him there.
1: Yeah, it was great seeing all these people in one scene. This scene was shot the same weekend that they shot that Vanity Fair photo shoot with all the people uh, for the 10 years of Marvel. And uh, the only thing that I don't like that about the scene is, well, there's a couple things. Oh, no, I, mostly one. I think I brought this up in the last Avengers podcast that we did on Slash Film Daily, is that we don't get to see Captain Marvel reunite with Nick Fury, you know, decades later. You know, they're just kind of standing near each other. So we don't get to see that moment. Um, but also interesting here is, Samuel Jackson's Nick Fury is, is seen in the background there on the uh, the porch. And Spider-Man is also at this funeral. But from what we've seen with the Spider-Man Far From Home trailers, they meet for the first time in that movie. So, Brad, I'm wondering, like do, do you think that's a prequel moment or do you think they just never met at the uh, funeral?
3: Well, you know, there's um... – Endgame has kind of thrown a wrench in what I was thinking about um, where Spider-Man Far From Home will fall. Because we see in in, in Endgame that Peter returns to high school, which, which could perfectly set up what happens in Far From Home. But at the same time, the amount of time that has passed since Civil War, um, be- which happened before Spider-Man Homecoming, and the events of Endgame, the timeline doesn't entirely match up because... Peter Parker was a sophomore in Spider-Man Homecoming, which happens after Civil War, and uh, Scott Lang is under house arrest for a couple of years, as we learn in Ant-Man and the Wasp. So that would mean another year would have had to have passed afterwards, which would... Uh, the, the, the time, the, the way, if you look at it, it just doesn't really make sense. You'd have to wonder well, like what Peter Parker has been doing for an extended period of time if this movie takes place... Uh, after co- Endgame, it's supposed to take place in the, his next year of high school, right? Right, but that that would mean that we probably would have to like skip a year of his high school somehow because of, the, of what happens in Ant Man the Wasp. at least that's from what I, what I, from what I can tell with how certain other events play out between uh, when Spider Man and and uh, meets Tony Stark in Civil War, and then through the events of of uh, of Endgame, but. You know, I, I don't. It, what, what, what? The issue here, though, is that that makes it kind of complicated. Is that when Peter Parker returns to school, five years have passed. Presumably, all the students that are coming back are those that have been dusted. Yeah. Um, because the rest of them would presumably have continued school um, for for those years as as life continued. So it's it's tough to say. Part of me wonders if maybe Spider-Man: Far From Home will take place before the events of Avengers: Endgame. Simply because this is the last movie in phase three and much in the way that Ant-Man ended phase two,
1: um, this maybe this will tie like have, have take place before that finale. I mean, that would be smart, but I wonder why all this time every all the reporters asking Kevin Feige about that, like, why wouldn't he just say, oh, it's a prequel?
4: I think also the Spider-Man movies have always been very loose with canon. I remember yeah. there was that thing in uh, Spider-Man Homecoming where they have the eight years later yeah. um, transition from like the Battle of New York. And then like, that's when Spider-Man teams up in civil war. And like, that doesn't make sense. And uh, <laughs> they basically, I think um, so bad as were basically confirmed that that was wrong and I think the Spider-Man people don't really care as much about the canon as, as uh, the Marvel people do.
1: Yeah, um, you know, talking about that funeral, one person we did not see at that funeral is Gamora, the Gamora that traveled from 2014 to now and was in that big battle, but then she kind of disappeared. Chris, I know you wrote up this whole story, theorizing what Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three could be. Or, or is it even is it going to be called Volume Three, or is it going to be Gar- As Guardians of the Galaxy?
2: Uh, I doubt they're going to change the title, but who knows? But yeah, um, I have some theories. Other people have these theories as well. It's not like I I invented them, but I'm hoping you know the hints that are dropped at the end of Endgame are giving us an idea of what's to come. I mean, first and foremost, I really hope thor sticks with with them for the whole movie like i you know it's set up that you know thor goes on board the ship with them at the end and there's that whole back and forth where him and uh, star lord are both you know jockeying for for leadership and i really hope that's part of the third film because if not it's a huge uh like wasted opportunity because uh chris hemsworth has great comedic timing he fits in so well with those characters and i really you know honestly he's (laughs) i find him at this point more interesting than star lord like i i don't care if star ward comes back or not i might be more interested with like thor taking over as the the lead of that franchise but i doubt that'll happen but But it it seems like he doesn't want to be the leader or does yeah uh he definitely wants to be somewhat in charge I, i don't know but um then the other thing is you know uh the, the Russo's did this very clever, cheeky thing where they get to have their cake and eat it too, where you know they still get to have Gamora be dead, but also she's alive because, you know, the present day Gamora is still dead, but the Gamora from a few years ago gets to live in the present day now because she traveled through time. And, uh, you know, even though she she helps everyone out at the end, she also doesn't stick around. Um, you know, she we're not really shown where she goes. And I actually think this is sort of like bad editing, bad filmmaking on the part of the Russes, that They don't really show us where she went, because as a result, some people I think
1: it's intentional. I think they want you to think, was she dusted when when Tony Stark snapped his uh fingers was she part of thanos's group that was dusted because how does he know to differentiate her from the rest of that group
2: i don't know but i i think that's bad filmmaking and the ruse is really goofed there because it's it's silly because we all know she's not dusted she's going to be in this next movie it's part of the the contracts and it's just a it's a goof on their part they really should have just not bother doing that but in any case she's not around and i'm guessing a big part of the move of the third movie is going to be about you know the guardians trying to find her because there's that shot where uh, star-lord is looking at the computer screen and it says searching it has gamora's photo on it so uh, i'm sure there is, that's going to be part of the film where they're trying to find her and where she went and you know obviously the 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 whole relationship that built up between Gamora and Star-Lord is gone at this point because that Gamora doesn't exist anymore. So it's going to be. That's that's my big question. Like if
1: they find her, like it seems like it would just be repeating the same storyline over again. If it's Star-Lord trying to like, you know, uh, (laughs) them falling in love, it's the same dynamic that they started with. Do you know what I mean? Well,
2: who's to say, who's to say they're going to fall in love again. I mean, this is actually a clever way for them to, have a completely new take on this character like you know there's no saying she's going to yeah. end up being the same gamora we've grown to know like you know the her experiences aren't going to be the same so her character is going to be different unless they get lazy and then just make her be the same exact yeah. character
1: i don't think they are going to because i think like that would just be too much of a retread uh, maybe this time she'll fall in love with the tree as they say um, <laughs> yeah. i would
4: be happy if she didn't fall in love with star lord because i never bought their chemistry but yeah
1: I know in your piece, Chris, you were pitching the idea of a rocket nebula relationship.
2: Yes, I want this to happen. I'm not big into shipping because I'm a grown man, but uh...
4: hey, grown men can be into shipping too. All right, all right Clarify <laughs> there. But
2: as far as shipping goes, this is where I this is the the brunt of my shipping experience where I want rocket and nebula to hook up i want this to happen there's a shot one of my favorite moments in endgame is where they just have this this silent moment where rocket comforts her and i i just really like nebula as a character and it's come a long way because i actually didn't care for her at all in the first guardians movie and then i think guardians 2 really use Ka- karen gillen's potential to its fullest and she's a really good actress and she's made this part her own and I just really want more of her in the franchise, and I want her and Rocket, who are both the most miserable members of the group, to uh, <laughs> to just you know fall for each other. They're both miserable; they deserve each other.
1: And they've both been like like scientifically engineered and wor- like changed, altered in ways. Right. They're, they're both like
2: self hating freaks, and <laughs> that's what that's what they have in common. And I think I think those two kids could be happy together.
1: Yeah. HT, I know you, um, there was an unexpected crossover that happened in this movie that you were kind of excited about.
4: Yeah, um, I'm one of the few people who keep up with the Marvel TV series, uh, one of which is Agent Carter. And uh, we saw the first crossover between uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and a Marvel TV show with the appearance of this character played by James Darcy. Uh, James Darcy plays Edwin Jarvis, who first appeared in Agent Carter, the ABC series that starred Haley Atwell as Peggy Carter um, in the aftermath of World War II as she is working for... The uh, SSR, uh, which is the predecessor to Shield. So James Stark, oh, sorry, Edwin Jarvis is um, Howard Stark's butler, who is actually the inspiration for Tony Stark's um, AI, Jarvis, and uh, he and Agent Carter team up um, in the series to uh, clear Howard Stark's name and go on other adventures that I don't quite remember but it's always fun and, he, and James Darcy is just so delightful in this role and uh, he makes an appearance during the uh 70s uh shield sequence in which um Howard Stark now played by John Slattery because he's older um gets into his car which the door is being held open by uh Jarvis and he asks Jarvis do I know that man referring to Tony Stark and uh, uh Jarvis says you meet a lot of people, and that's the extent of his appearance.
1: It's the most Back to the Future scene of this whole movie, I think. Uh, Like that meeting between um, Tony and his father Howard. Uh, It's. uh, I wonder if Disney Plus is gonna like Agent Carter was probably in my mind the only good uh, Marvel. I guess Daredevil had some moments, but uh,
4: Jessica Jones. Jessica
1: Jones. Yeah, I watched the first season. Yeah, that was fine. But okay, Agent Carter I think was the only great one in my mind, and I I wonder if Disney Plus if if people are gonna find that series on Disney Plus, and if there's a chance I know so many fans have been demanding for you know another season of that, but m- maybe something like Disney Plus could make that possible. Who knows? Um, okay, there uh, the end credits of this movie did not have a. It's the first Marvel film to not have an end credit scene at all. Instead, it has. Some sounds, which honestly, the first time I heard the sounds, I was confused. I thought maybe this is like them ringing a bell for Tony, like you know, like a ten ring salute kind of thing of his him dying. That is not what it is. Chris, can you can you talk? You wrote a whole piece on this on the site on how this end credit sound symbolizes both an ending and a beginning. What do you mean by that?
2: Yes, yeah, so uh, you're not alone in being confused in this sound because when I saw uh, Endgame, um, first of all, I never stay for the end credits, but I did this time because I was reviewing the film and I wanted to see if there was a, a scene, which there wasn't. But there wait, wait, this- wait, wait,
1: wait, wait, a second here, Chris. Yes, <laughs> you never stay for the end credits scene.
2: No, I, I don't care. It's a waste. It's a waste of time. I got places <sighs> to be, Peter. I got things to do. Time is money. I can't. I can't sit around and wait for a oh, cute little scene where ant-man high fives uh dracula i don't care like i, I, I don't need to see that thing i got i got places I'm, to see. I'm always wondering i'm in
1: these press screenings for marvel movies and like more than half the audience leaves like during like when the credits hit and i'm like who are these people? And I, I didn't have any idea not I worked with know. one of these people. Let's
3: be, let's be honest here, Chris. If there was a scene where Ant Man high fived Dracula, you bet your ass you'd stick
2: around for that. I mean, yeah, I guess if that were the case. Look, these movies are long. Like, I don't, I want to get out of the theater. And this, but look, like but I Chris, said, you, you are like you respect cinema. Like, why not pay the respect
1: to all these people that that helped create these things by, look, by watching their names go over the screen.
2: Let's not get crazy and call these movies cinema. All right. Let's <laughs> let's <sighs> <sighs> Okay. Well, we're about
4: to get some angry emails now. <laughs>
2: Anyway.
1: I have a feeling many people are gonna be mad at you, Chris. Well, <laughs> uh,
2: I'm I'm used to it at this point. But anyway, so yeah, there's this sound over the the Marvel logo that comes up, and it's a clanging sound, and I I distinctly heard someone in my screen and be like, Oh, that must be Thor's hammer. But no, it's not that. It is a hammer, though. It is Uh, The sound effect from Iron Man building the first of many, 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 many Iron Man suits in the first Iron Man there. You know, the the first Iron Man movie, he ends up captured. He's in a cave. He builds the suit. And that's what that hammering is. It's him pounding away at at the the metal. And uh, this is a a cute little clever little thing, because for one thing, it's, it's Marvel acknowledging the start of everything, because. You know, that moment where Tony is building his suit is literally like the beginning of the MCU. And it was back before any of us really had any idea of what the MCU would actually become. And uh, at the same time, so the way I see it is that moment is, for one, it's paying tribute to, you know, Tony slash Iron Man, who is dead. And, you know, it's a little tribute to him. And it's a way of, you know, closing the book by saying, here's where it all started. Here's where it's ending at the same time. It's also symbolizing new beginning because that whole scene is about Tony essentially being reborn. You know, he goes into that cave. One person, you know, he's this smug uh, weapons manufacturer and then he comes out completely different. I mean, he's still smug, but he's a, he's a new man. He's a hero at this point. And you know, uh, if anything, this. And, whole... and by the end of the series, he ended up sacrificing
1: himself, something that you would never assume he would ever do in the beginning right, of the series. Exactly. Yeah.
2: That's what I was about. To... Yeah. So, like, over... if anything, the Infinity Saga is his journey from becoming you know from starting out as this one person and literally sacrificing himself to save the the galaxy and that's that's a huge arc for a character so the way i see it is you know this sound it's both you know marvel saying goodbye and marvel also saying you know yes this this door has closed this chapter of our cinematic universe has ended but now something else is going to begin. Something else is going to emerge from that cave, so to speak, that metaphorical cave, and be something new and exciting. And who knows what it's going to be? And that's how I interpret that that sound. I think that's a good interpretation.
1: Um. Oh, one other e- Easter egg I wanted to bring up that we did not have on our uh our notes. Brad, I've seen this movie three times. I have not seen this, Brad, but. Brad tells me that there is a secret cameo that you can see in the big end, like end battle.
3: Yes, that's true. <laughs> um, there, So a friend of mine alerted this to me, this popped up on Reddit um, and I wanted to make sure that it was true. Uh, so I looked for it when I saw it the third time. And uh, in the shot during the final battle at the uh, destroyed Avengers facility, when the Wasp first arrives on the scene and they're, they're running through all the shots of people showing up to fight, uh, right when the Wasp arrives, if you look in the background, there's a group of Ravagers that are behind her, ready to fight with all the Avengers. And in the, uh, just to the right of her, um, right around her like abdomen level, uh, between a couple of Ravagers who are walking, you can very quickly see a shot of Howard the Duck holding a gun ready to fight, which is pretty fucking cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that that is cool. I'm going to probably have to see this a fourth time just to to see that on the big screen. HT, uh, I know you have to run out because you are covering the Tribeca Film Festival for yeah. the site. Uh, so I'm going to let you do that now because we just have a couple more things to get to, but I, I know I'm, I want to keep you around uh, to sit through this. So uh, where can people find more of your work online?
4: You can find me writing every day at slashfilm.com and I'm on Twitter at htranbuoy.
1: Thanks for joining us. Okay, we got a couple things left to talk about that I want to get to. Um, There was this interview with the Avengers Endgame writers that was published by The New York Times. And there was a bunch of stuff that came out of that that I thought was worth uh, chatting about. Um, They read you wrote this whole piece up, uh, rounding up some of their quotes about death, the snap and more. Uh, What what do you think are the most interesting parts of that uh, that people need to know?
3: Um, probably one of the more interesting things is to, uh, them talking about exactly uh, what, uh, how they wanted to approach um, Thanos af- after he completes the snap. There was there was some discussion about um, how they should kill him, when they should kill him, you know, what what exactly it means for like f- how the movie proceeds uh, after that, and so like. The uh, McFeely says, uh, we always had this problem. The guy has the ultimate weapon. He can see it coming. It's ridiculous. We were just banging our heads for weeks. And at some point, uh, the executive producer, Trin Tran, said, can't we just kill him? And we all went, well, what happens if you kill him? Why Why would you kill him? Why would he let you kill him? And then uh, Marcus says, yeah, it reinforced uh, Thanos's agenda. He was done. Not to make him too Christ-like, but it was like, if I've got to die, I can die now. So they really didn't know what to do with Thanos after he had completed his mission. And you, audiences would wonder, okay, well, where's Thanos now? What's going on? And so the idea of having the Avengers going to just kill him uh, really actually hits home even harder the idea that they failed because now that Thanos is dead, they have no way to get the stones back. And it makes that, that uh, bumper that you know, very dramatically reveals that five years has passed uh, even more you know impactful because you it, it shows you the avengers really have failed they haven't figured out a way to fix this and even when they defeat thanos there's no victory there because they've still lost and they have to live with that loss for what seems like the rest of their lives they have no mission they have no villain they have nothing to to fight for anymore and that that that's their their life from from then on so uh, i think it was a, a really interesting idea to do, to do that because uh Everyone knew that they were going to have to, you know, fight Thanos again and killing him immediately, immediately gives audiences this idea of like, well, what the hell happens now?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no. Yeah. My whole audience like gasped when it hit uh, five years later. Uh, I'm actually kind of wondering, do you think there was ever a plan to maybe end Infinity War with Thanos getting killed? Do you know what I mean?
3: Uh, I actually think that they uh, they did talk about that
1: um, as uh, before, didn't we? Did something on that before? Oh, maybe, maybe they did say that then. Maybe I'm <laughs> repeating memory of me reading something about that. Uh, but I can totally see how those two movies could be cut at that point as well. Do you know what I mean? Like y- you have a victory, but nothing has been changed you still have whatever um but i i I actually love that they ended where they did um chris what you also wrote up a story rounding up because these the writers were asked about all these alternate versions of the movie not just endgame but infinity war and you kind of have this whole roundup of that what what are some of the most interesting things
2: uh yeah it's it's a Pretty lengthy piece, so I urge everyone to read it to get the, the full details, but the, the writers, they, they go into some interesting uh, details about, you know, where they decided to place certain moments, what they originally had in earlier drafts. Um, one such thing was uh, they... They were wondering, you know, when to bring certain characters back because obviously, you know, after after Infinity War, every, you know, half the the universe gets snapped away, and you know, one of the debates they had was how soon they would bring people back for Endgame because obviously, that was always the plan to somehow undo what Thanos did and bring certain characters back, and they realized they couldn't do it so too early. And as a result, they they also realized that a lot of characters that people liked, you know, like Dr. Strange and black Panther and so on, were are just going to have to, you know, sit out a long part of the movie. And, you know, they literally said, you know, they realized the movie can't be all things to all, all people. So they just had to, to go with it, even though they, they sort of struggled with trying to decide who does what and when, um, Some other things is earlier drafts, they had it so that instead of uh, Black Widow sacrificing herself, they had Hawkeye sacrifice himself. You know, there's there's that whole scene where they're trying to get the the soul stone and they're they're bickering about who will sacrifice himself. And ultimately, Black Widow is the one who dies, but they originally did have it in the draft so that Hawkeye died, but then they thought, uh, you know, by having Black Widow die, it sort of completes her character arc, which I personally don't really agree with, but that, you know i didn't write the movie um I, I also don't agree with that like i feel like i want to see more
1: of black widow's story than i i mean i guess her, i guess in this in this movie it bookends it by her, us realizing as you know the people watching the the this saga that she has found a place for her, uh, she finally found a family um right and, and i and she... think that's the bookend
2: yeah it's that she finally found a family and she's willing to sacrifice herself for them but i don't know maybe it's just because i like black widow more than hawkeye so i'd i'd rather spend more time with her but um uh some other things uh what else oh uh, they they said that when they started writing the time travel stuff they were determined not to go back to the first avengers film because they felt That would just be too fanservice-y, which I think is interesting because this movie is filled with fanservice, but that was like the one thing where they they were trying to draw the line and be like, all right, whatever we do, we're not going to go back to the first Avengers film. And eventually the Russo brothers were just like, look, it'd be a lot easier for the story if we just went back to the first Avengers film. So they finally gave in and did that. Uh, during the same interview, they were asked, you know, during that big end battle scene, did they ever consider having the the Netflix Marvel characters show up? And they, they flat out said no, because you know they would have to explain who they were and you know they've never actually been mentioned in the movies before so they they ultimately decided against that um they were also asked you know would you have the x-men show up and they said you know at the time they wrote the script the fox disney deal wasn't done so legally they couldn't do it and even if they could have legally done it they felt it would have been kind of rude to sort of reboot the x-men because there's an x-men movie coming out still dark phoenix and it would kind of be like a jerk move to have have their (laughs) own version of the x-men show up before that movie even comes out also i don't i mean anybody
1: asking i know this guy whoever did this interview wrote for the new york times but like do people realize how movies are made like this film was shot back to back with infinity war so if if you if you could do the math and figure out how long ago that was I mean, I guess you could put the, you could do some reshoots at the last second. I mean, Marvel's not beyond that, right? Like they, after the no. original Avengers film, after the premiere, I went to the premiere of the original Avengers film. That uh, that night after the junket, they filmed that shawarma scene and put it into the final release. So I guess, I guess, right. yeah.
2: And at the same time, when you're when you're doing interviews with people, you 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 also have to write. Not just for yourself, you have to write for the general public. I know, you know, obviously yeah. I'm no I'm no New York Times writer, so I don't want to compare myself <laughs> to him. But, uh, you know, I know I, in the past I've done interviews where I've known the answer to certain questions, but I deliberately asked them because I know some of our readers might not know and they might be curious. So, there, you know, there's, a, there's always a chance they, that question got brought up because of that.
1: Fair enough. Um, so there's a lot more in that article. You can read that on slash Uh Chris. Is there any more that you want to say about Avengers Endgame? Because I know you, you you've only touched the surface of what you wrote in your review.
2: No, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised. I know everyone, all of our listeners, have this idea that I I hate the MCU. I don't hate the MCU. I just wish it was better than it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it is because you know, for better or worse, we're we're stuck with these movies. These movies take up a huge part of the the cinematic landscape and my theory is if we're going to have these movies multiple versions of these movies every year i want them to be the best movies they possibly can be and more often than not i don't think they are i think they're average or okay um i don't think any of them are outright terrible except for maybe like iron man 2, but i i think the majority of them are just okay and i think this movie i think avengers endgame actually transcends that i think it is more than okay it's actually really good i don't know if i'd call it great but i do think it it finally gave me what i was hoping for with a lot of other marvel movies It, it goes big it swings for the fences it doesn't hold back it leans into conclusions you know one of my least favorite things about previous marvel films is a lot of them feel like setup you know infinity war i think is the worst uh, offender of this where that movie feels almost entirely like set up for endgame oh and... that,
1: that that is a question i want to ask you chris does seeing this movie as this is a conclusion of this two-story arc does this in any way make that movie better
2: uh, not for me. I I I still think that movie suffers from being. Uh, it, it feels almost rushed to me, which is ironic since this movie is longer. But this movie never actually feels rushed to me. Whereas Infinity War, it just feels like they're they're really rushing to get to this movie. And I understand why because this is the better movie. But uh, yeah. So so that's my biggest takeaway here. Um, I know not every Marvel movie can be as big in scope as this movie. But uh, if future Marvel movies can lean into the emotional beats here and into the, the quieter moments, even I, I was really impressed at there were a lot of quiet moments in this big three hour blockbuster. And I want more of that. I want more emotion. I want more, I want more spectacle. I want more scope. And if, if more Marvel's followed this film, Uh, we'd be a lot better off at the same time i'm perfectly fine with the russo brothers no longer directing marvel movies because i think they're they're average filmmakers at best and i am more excited to see what what better directors do with with this material well it seems like they're done with marvel so you can
1: uh smile now um you can rest now chris
2: yes finally
1: (laughs) (laughs) uh uh brad do you have any uh, final thoughts? Any observations you've made about the movie uh, that you want to relay on this podcast?
3: Um, I just I think that this is just this is a very special movie. I think this is like like uh, without getting too hyperbolic, that this will be one of those movies that we remember for a long time. And I think that this movie will be a lot of people's um like 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 when people talk about where they were when they first saw Star Wars, a lot of people are going to talk about seeing Avengers Endgame for the first time, uh, in, in theaters. Uh, this is, it's, it's literally an unprecedented, uh, moment, you know, in, in motion pictures because you've never seen a movie that, uh, ends, you know, all these different story arcs from 21 movies that came before it and does, does so in such a way that is, uh, satisfying to both critics and fans, uh, and does, does so much, you know, with, with a, a relatively short period of time, I think one of the biggest complaints uh, some people have had, and even uh, Patrick H. Williams has talked about this in his video series, breaking down some of the problems with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is that you don't ever really feel the stakes of the Marvel Cinematic Universe sometime because you have such a finite window to spend with these characters as opposed to having long comic book arcs play out in multiple issues. And I think this movie. Uh, aided by its three-hour runtime, does a great job with giving the Avengers some real stakes that they have to deal with, some real consequences that they have to accept for a time. Uh, it gives them some challenges to overcome and really gives all of their, the especially the main Avengers, a satisfying uh, emotional character arc that helps them grow not only in this movie by itself, but from the rest of the movies where they started uh, in in their own origin stories spread, spread across the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it's just uh, – I, I really am in awe of what they pulled off with this movie. It is it's, it's uh, it is fantastic.
1: I think uh, that's well said. So uh, that brings us to the end here. Uh, Brad, where can people find more of your work online? Uh, Always
3: slash film.com. Uh, you can check me out on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderson and also my own
1: podcast, Go Flix Yourself. Chris, where can we find you?
2: Uh also slash hum dot com and I'm on Twitter at C evangelista four thirteen. Come tell me you hate all my
1: theories. Yes. Will. we will come in mass to tell you that you need to sit in your seat until the end of the oh. credits, Chris. <laughs> okay. Okay, Uh, I'll also link to your spoiler or to Brad's spoiler review, your initial review, and also Ben's piece, uh, how Avengers Endgame affects Spider-Man Far From Home. So you can check out all that in the show notes. You can find more of all the stories we mentioned on today's podcast linked in the show notes. This podcast Slash Film Daily is published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. You can also find it at daily.slashfilm.com. And please send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, complaints about Chris leaving the theater before the end credit scenes to peter at com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we will see you tomorrow. I'm really in disbelief that you actually leave the theater before, like, you know, I've said this before. It shouldn't be that shocking. Yes, I thought, maybe I thought you were joking. Maybe I thought it was just like a joke. No. 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 I never I never lie. I'm always truthful. Wait, so <laughs> I'm trying to think of an instance like has this ever come back to like burn you in the butt?
2: No, because thankfully in our content-driven culture Anytime there's something really important in a, a end credit scene, it's immediately online somewhere. So like a, a website like Collider, I'll be like, here's what happens in the post credit scene. So, you know, if I need to know, I can always just read those descriptions. And, you know, I eventually. Yeah,
1: but, that, but that's the best
2: way to experience the movie is reading it on Collider. Yes, exactly. That's how I experience all my movies. I wait for Collider to write them up. <laughs>